We live in an era of enormous societal change, especially in the area of family and marriage and what we consider to be normal and acceptable for today. And it's actually hard to define what is normal and acceptable because today's society would probably actually want to remove both those words from our vocabulary because to say that something is normal is to infer that something else is, is abnormal and to say that something is acceptable means that everything else is unacceptable. And if there's one thing that people hate, it's to be told that their chosen lifestyle is abnormal or that what they're doing is unacceptable. And so today we actually find there is actually a concerted push to redefine family and marriage and the rights and the responsibilities of those within them. And as I prepared for the message today, I I began to realise how much my own thoughts on family and marriage and how much probably your thoughts on family and marriage um, have been coloured by the culture in which you live and I live and, of course, by the family unit that we grew up in. Um, probably more so than what the Bible actually has to say about it. Because what is considered normal and acceptable in our culture has actually changed over time. So, for example, in the Middle Ages, in Western Europe, a single nuclear family of mum, dad and the kids is what defined a family. But at that same period of history, if you just shift across to Eastern Europe well, multiple generations of the same family lived together in the same household. And so you probably didn't only have mum, dad and the kids, but you also had uh, grandma, grandpa, great granny and her incontinent cat all living with you at the same time. So these things were same period of history, different places, different cultures. Here's another example. It was really only in the late 18th century where the more modern families began to marry for love. Before then it was very often a family choice or a political choice or a business choice. Uh, Whereas today we probably wouldn't think of any other reason for marrying somebody other than for love. Unless of course we lived in another culture where arranged marriages are still normal such as in India. And then we think about in my dad's day In the 50s and 60s, if a wife went off to work, well, the husband was considered a failure for providing for his family. In fact, it was illegal for married women to work in government jobs. And so if you're a school teacher or a nurse or whatever and you got got married, guess what? You had to quit your job. And, um, And so I thought that that was normal. I thought, well, that's the way it's always been. But history actually tells us a different story. Single-income families have actually only been a luxury that has existed for a very few short decades from the end of World War II through to about the 1980s. Before World War II, people were generally poor, poor enough, that they actually needed the two incomes in the family. It was only during this time of of, um, enormous societal wealth from the end of World War II through to about the 1980s that this became normal. Now, I was brought up thinking this was normal. Um, And it was, but only for about 30 or 40 years. Sociologically, marriage, family and family relationships have been constantly evolving around economic, social and political patterns within the world. 
So if the family is constantly evolving, if what makes up the family unit and, and if what controls relationships between husbands and wives and children and grandparents, if that's constantly changing, on what basis, on what model should I build my family? What I'm asking is, is there some kind of benchmark? Is there a fixed point of reference that does not change on which we can model our families? And the answer to that is a very definite yes. There is a fixed point. There is an unchangeable rock. And that reference point is the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship to the church. As I read the reading for today, I I so many times found myself wondering, is Paul teaching us about marriage and family or is he teaching us about Christ and his church? Because sometimes he seems to be teaching about marriage and family and then other times he seems to be teaching about Christ and the church. Is he using the simile of husbands and wives to help us to understand Christ and the church or is he using the simile of Christ and the church to help us to understand marriage relationships? And I think the answer is both. We will not fully understand Christ's relationship with the church unless we can also understand how husbands and wives should be relating to one another. And likewise, we will not fully understand marriage relationships until we understand how Christ loves the church. So I think it's both. So right here, right here in Ephesians chapter 5, is our fixed point of reference for our understanding on family and marriage. Last week's message was on sacrificial love and sacrificial living. And we discovered that the two go together. Sacrificial love and sacrificial living cannot be separated. You cannot have one without the other. They must go together. And in last week's reading, I actually included the tail end of it for, for this week's reading. And it concluded by saying this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to a life of sacrificial love and sacrificial living and this includes a life of worship. Worship is not just something you do on a Sunday. If the only time that you ever sing songs of praise to God is is on a Sunday morning between 10 and 11, then your praise and worship is deficient. God deserves our praises morning, noon and night, every day of the week. God calls us to live lives of worship where we remember in our minds and remember in our hearts what God has done for us and we're just filled with worship for him and every, everything we do in life 
is done to glorify God. That's real worship. And part of this sacrificial love and sacrificial living is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now reverence is actually an expression of worship, but what is reverence? What does it mean to revere Christ? I suspect that some of us probably actually have a little bit of trouble grasping what it means to revere Christ. The Greek word that Paul uses here is phobo, or coming from the word phobos, from which we get our word phobia, which means fear. To revere Christ is to fear him, to have a healthy respect for Christ. Jesus is not your buddy-buddy pump pal mate chum that's not Jesus Jesus Christ is your saviour he is your redeemer he is your lord Jesus Christ is your God and your judge we have good reason to fear God but to fear God doesn't mean that we're scared of him it doesn't mean that we cower away from God and cower away from his very presence What it means is that we're filled with a healthy, awe-filled respect for him. Last century, when I was a little boy, um, used to go to school and the school principal was feared. Not only by the kids, but also by the teachers as well. He was looked up to. He was respected. He was honoured. When we spoke to him, it was with the utmost of respect. I wasn't scared of him. The naughty kids were, the ones on the way up to the office to get the cuts. They were scared of him. But I wasn't scared of him. But I did fear him. Do you get the difference? I think maybe kids today probably don't fear the principal quite as much as what what we used to in our day. Maybe I should have prefaced it with, back in the old days. Um, But that's the sort of fear, that's the sort of reverence times ten or more that we should have for Christ. And it's because of this reverence that we have for Christ that that we submit to one another. Sacrificial love and sacrificial living find their expression in this thing called submission. Ooh, submission. Uh, what a terrible word we think that one is. The so-called rights of the individual, personal empowerment, self-determination, equality among these, the sexes, these things are held as an ideal to aspire to And submission is nearly always these days seen as an absolute negative. Now, I'm going to take us what you might think is a little bit off topic for a moment, but I hope you soon see it's not. I'm going to ask, what is God's intended model for government? We live in a democracy. And as such, we tend to think, well, democracy is God's intended form of government. That's how it should be for everybody. That's the godly way, um, you know, where it's our right to control the government. 
Since Federation in 1901, Australia has been a democratic country and I'm fine with that personally because, hey, that's the country in which we live. But as I read the Bible, I actually don't find democracy within the Bible as God's ideal form of government. And, of course, the ultimate outcome of democracy is you end up having falling into the troubles that Greece has at the moment where we just give everybody exactly what they want and the whole country ends up going broke. God's plan for governing is not a dictatorship, nor is it democracy. God's plan for government is for some to be appointed as leaders under him and for others to accept that leadership and that's what we call loyalty. And so God's design for government is not dictatorship, it is not democracy, it is leadership under God and loyalty. And we can see this in all forms of government, in in the more national type government, uh, the local government, governance of the church, right down to the simplest form of government which is the family unit. And one day Jesus is going to return and we talked about that with the kids that when he returns and the church will be presented to him as the bride of Christ. And when Jesus returns he will be our king, he will be our leader, he will be in leadership and we will be in submission to him. But the word submission today has become a concept to despise and reject, especially when it comes to marriage. Contrary to this, I'm going to say to you, without sacrificial love, without sacrificial living, without sacrificial leadership and sacrificial loyalty, without submission, no marriage can really be successful. Because if marriage is a democracy, you've seen how democracies work in the country in which we live, haven't you? If marriage was a democracy and there's only two people in the democracy, what we would find is it's either the toughest, the strongest or the most manipulative who ends up ruling. Now, how would that make for a marriage? If the toughest or the strongest or the most manipulative was the decision maker. None of us would want that. Is it any wonder that as we've become more self-centred and more fixated on ourselves and our rights and less willing to sacrificially submit to one another, the divorce rate has continued to climb higher and higher and higher. If there is no submission in the marriage and no sacrificial leadership in the marriage, that marriage is doomed to failure. If the husband is self-seeking or if the wife is self-seeking, They have not understood marriage. Verses 22 to 24 are dangerous ground and I take my life in my hands to tread upon them. Um, They're guaranteed to get the hackles up on any feminist and to bring their blood to the boil faster than what any heavy-duty microwave could ever manage. But before the lynch mob come to get me, I want you to listen to the whole message. Verse 22 to 24 says... Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, 
and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now without sacrificial love and without sacrificial living, you're going to hate those verses. You're going to hate this whole submission thing because that's what it's about is sacrificial love and sacrificial living. The feminist or women's liberation movement have had a huge impact on our society and the whole concept of wives submitting to husbands has been demonised so much so that even Christian women who in practice may be submitting to their husbands that you know, they may be loyal to their husband's, uh, husband and enjoying his sacrificial leadership and yet they still shudder at the word submission. They're embarrassed to even talk about it. Preachers are very much scared away from it, from ever even preaching on this topic. And it's not without fear and trepidation that I approach it today. I want to begin by saying this. It is not only wives who submit. All disciples of Jesus Christ are required to submit. We don't submit because we are weak, but because we are strong. We don't submit because we are second class citizens, but because we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We don't submit because we're dumb, but because we have been told and know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. We submit out of reverence for Christ. We submit because submission is an expression of sacrificial living and sacrificial living is what we do. When Paul wrote this letter to a bunch of Christians in a town called Ephesus, or a city actually, um, he was dictating it to a scribe. And he didn't as he went through, he said, right, we've just finished uh, verse 21 now, I want you to put number 22 there and we'll continue on. Oh, actually, let's even put a little heading above there just to break it up a little bit more. He didn't do that. Paul was writing a letter. Now, when you sit down to read a letter from Aunt Maud, I'm sure you don't just sit down and go, oh, I'm going to read this paragraph today. Then you read that paragraph, oh, that's very nice, and then you, oh, I'll leave another paragraph for a little bit later. That's not how it works. When you write a letter, it's, it's meant to be read as a whole, isn't it? Which is why a few weeks ago we read that whole letter as a whole. Now, but the problem is we tend to do that with the Bible. Here we have a letter, and last week we read this little section, and then, oh, there's a heading there. But guess what? Paul never put that heading there. God never put that heading there. And that in my Bible, between verse 21 and verse 22, there's a heading, which I think it says, husbands and wives. So it's like, oh, this section's talking about, about us as Christians, and oh, now we're talking about husbands and wives. But the thing is, verse 22 was never meant to be divorced from verse 21. They must be read together. 
In fact, in, in the best and most reliable of the original Greek manuscripts, verse 22 does not even make any sense unless it's read with verse 21 because verse 22 doesn't even have the word submit in it. Let me give you the direct translation. Verse 21 says, Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Verse 22 says, The wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. See, the the word submit isn't even in there. But of course, when you read it together, it's obviously talking about submission because it's verse 21. That's why they stick that other word in there. Verse 23, because a man, and I I want to actually look at that word man. Usually in the Greek where we talk about the word man, it uses the word anthropos or anthropou. It's it's just a meaning of man. But the word used here is actually the word enia. And the word here for man is is man as distinct from woman. And it's got all sorts of connotations of of manliness and chivalry. Um, Husband, bridegroom, warrior, manliness, gentleman, hero. Right, The stereotypical man that we all want to be. Who wants to be the man like that? And yet society wants to make us feel guilty for ever thinking such a thing. Oh, that's a stereotypical male. You need to be more effeminate. But that's not the word man used here. This never apologised for true manliness that the picture it's painting is this true sacrificial manliness where the man would die for his wife. Okay? The chivalrous man. So verse 23 says, Because this sacrificial man is head of the woman, as also Christ is head of the church, himself saviour of the body. Verse 24, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives to their husbands in everything. Now the reason I gave you that literal translation is because I want you to understand that verse 21 is not to be divorced from verse 22. Verse 21 and verse 22 must go together. And what does verse 21 tell us? tells us that we all submit. It is not only the wives who live a life of submission. Men also live a life of submission. We submit to Christ, but we also submit, in verse 21... To one another. Having said this, in the family unit, God's design for decision making is sacrificial leadership and sacrificial loyalty. And thus, wives submit to their husbands, and this is part of the sacrificial loving and sacrificial living. If a wife does not sacrificially love her husband, she's going to have a lot of trouble with this whole submission thing. And likewise, if a husband is not sacrificially loving his wife, that's going to make it very difficult also. Now, it just glares at me in the face here how important it is for us to choose carefully who we marry. 
It's very important for women to choose to marry somebody who they can look up to. Someone who can be the spiritual head of their house. And it's very important for men to marry someone who they can give sacrificial leadership to. Husbands also express sacrificial living and sacrificial loving within the marriage relationship. They just do it in different ways. And we're going to be getting to that a bit more next week. Um, I think I think it'll be next week. It'll either be next week or the week after. I think actually this section we're actually going to be spending probably three weeks on it overall. Um, so we'll see how we go. Now it might come as a bit of a surprise to you, but men and women are actually different. Has anyone ever noticed that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, I know that might actually shock you, but it's something that I've found to be true. And in marriage, men and women have different responsibilities and different obligations. We are not just different physiologically. Obviously, we're different physiologically, but we're different. And I cannot get around the fact, and I will not be embarrassed about it, nor will I shy away from it, that the man in the marriage, the manly one, the husband, the warrior, the bridegroom, the manly hero, has a responsibility that the wife does not have. And that is the responsibility to be a sacrificial leader. Now I want you to keep that word sacrificial there because this whole section of Ephesians has been talking about sacrificial love and sacrificial living. We cannot talk about leadership in this area of Ephesians without having the word sacrificial there. Peter O'Brien says those in authority have different roles with greater responsibility, but they are not better roles. The value, dignity or worth of members in Christian household in a subordinate position is no less than those in authority. And I believe that that if we men were keeping our responsibilities, if we were keeping the responsibility of of loving sacrificially, a responsibility of living sacrificially, if we kept the responsibility of leading sacrificially, if everything we did was to serve, protect, love and seek the best interests of our wives, if if nothing about us was self-seeking, I don't think our wives would argue with us about the wisdom of leadership and submission. The submission of the wife does not mean that she is a doormat to be trade upon. Sacrificial leadership always seeks the best interests of those who they lead. That's what makes a sacrificial leader. What gives submission a bad name is its abuse by those who are self-serving. And that is not the way of Christian marriage. Sacrificial love and sacrificial living. How do we guard against self-seeking behaviour within the marriage? It's so tempting, isn't it? Where we just... 
Think of our own selves and think of our own comfort, our own pleasures, our own whatever it is. How do we guard against this self-seeking behaviour? Sacrificial love and sacrificial living, this submission that we have one to another, the leadership of the husband and the loyalty of the wife is all grounded in a life of worship. Remember right at the start there of that reading, it said, you know, don't get drunk on wine but be filled with the Spirit. And then it talked about always having psalms and talking to one another about the mysteries of love of God, whatever. There have been times, my wife just looked at me, she's obviously read ahead. I want you to know these are rare times. Where on a Sunday morning, Robin and I have had a bit of a spat. I know that might surprise you because you all know that we're the perfect loving husband and wife and we never ever have... No, you, you don't know that about us? Oh, good. But there have been times, and I'm actually, when I wrote this, I was actually thinking of a particular time when we lived in Dolby. We had this argument, and our arguments usually end with me saying something quite spiteful, and Robin goes really quiet. And then we were running out of time. It was Sunday morning, we jumped in the car and we started driving to church. We were 15 minutes out of town. The whole way there, you could have cut the air with a knife. And we get out of the car and we walk into church and we try to pretend that everything's normal. We've got all of those words that we've said have been left hanging in the air. We get into church and we start singing songs. And it just feels wrong. It's incongruous. It's just not right. Now, has that ever happened to anybody else? Nobody else argues on a Sunday. Oh, it has. I've seen a few nods. And you say, you know what I'm saying. And I'm like, you come in the, in the church and after having this huge blue and then you try to worship God. How effective is it? I have a lot of trouble. It's not a good place to be. I try really, really hard now that I'm a minister not to let that happen because you can imagine the hypocrisy of leading worship with the remnants of a self-seeking tirade still fresh in your mind. It is hard to worship when you are self-seeking just as it is hard to be self-seeking when you worship. When you worship and you give yourself away to God, all of a sudden it becomes hard to be self-seeking and take yourself back again. There's a saying that a family that prays together stays together and there's probably a fair bit of truth in that. But what I am going to say is if you're living a life of worship, if you're praising God for what he's done, for his endless mercies, it's hard to take on this self-seeking behaviour. When a husband and wife live a life of worship, when they have a sacrificial love for one another, There's actually no problem with submission. There's no problem with headship. The problem comes if we try to have a marriage without sacrificial love. And it's sacrificial love all round. 
It's not only the wives who have to have sacrificial love, it's the husbands too. And as the leaders, they are to be the first. And next week, husbands, you'd better not stay away. It's your turn next week. Uh, I think it'll be next week. And wives, if your husband isn't here today, I think everybody's husband is here today. Um, But it'd be good to make sure that he comes along. And it's interesting, there's actually a fair bit more to say to husbands than what there is to say to wives in this passage. But we're also going to be getting a picture, I'm not sure now whether it's going to be this order, but I think it's going to be another couple of weeks, whether the message to the husbands is going to be next week or whether it's going to be the message about actually about marriage and Christ and the church. But we'll see how we go. But as we go home today, let's commit to sacrificial love and what that means in the Christian family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom that you model marriage on Christ and the church, Christ and his relationship with the church. Well, God, it's an amazing thing, this gift of marriage. You told us that the two become one flesh. So as we relate to the other, we're actually relating to ourselves. Well, I just pray for all those in this church who are married. Lord, that you would help us to sacrificially love the other. Lord, that you would help the husbands to be the sacrificial leaders that you call us to be. And that you would help the wives to live sacrificially in loyalty to that leadership. Submitting us to the headship of Christ. And Lord, I pray for all of us, men and women, boys and girls, that you would help us to submit to Christ and to submit to one another, never seeking our own fulfilment, but that we would be seeking to honour you and seeking to fulfil the best interests of the other. Lord, help us to understand more fully what it means to love sacrificially and to live sacrificially. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.